You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Caleb Hodson, filling in for Teresa Carey. Every week, journalists from Fierce Healthcare dive into some of the industry's biggest topics. We talk to experts about what's important now so you can prepare for the future. In a little bit, we'll talk about the role communities that are facing a crisis of access to healthcare. But first up, let's talk about the coming wave of biosimilars. The healthcare industry is grappling with rising drug prices. We thought inflation was bad, but last year, according to the Health and Human Services Department, there were over 1,200 prescription drug products whose price increases exceeded the inflation rate. Some drugs in 2022 increased by more than 500%. Pharmacy benefit managers, or PBMs, have a solution. Biosimilars are near exact copies of existing drugs. They are manufactured by different companies, and they can come to market once a drug's patent expires. Biosimilars could increase competition for some of the most popular drugs, and with competition, they could bring the price of drugs down. Dr. Alan Lotvin is president of CVS Health's Caremark PBM. He joins senior editor Paige Minimeyer to discuss the potential of biosimilars. Here they are. Alan, thanks so much for joining me. I, I don't think it's much of a secret that rising drug prices pose a huge challenge to the healthcare industry writ large. Most drug price increases occur in either January or July, and a recent study from HHS found that the number of increases in both months this year was higher than in previous years. Pharmacy benefit managers see biosimilar products as a key to finding a solution. To you know, kick off our conversation, can you tell us a bit more about what makes biosimilars different from other drugs on the market and how much of a role they play currently in this space? Sure. That's really nice to be here. I really appreciate your time. So when you think about biosimilars, biosimilars in the simplest fashion are the specialty pharmacy equivalent of generics. And that's unfortunately way oversimplified. So what a biosim- um, when we talk about generic drugs, we generally talk about the same chemical molecule. They're small molecules. They're made by chemistry. When you talk about biosimilars, you're talking about biologic agents. By definition, they're made in cells. And for all sorts of different reasons, they, they're, they're not exact. They may not be exact replicas. But ultimately, it's the same idea. It's once the intellectual property has expired and the marketing exclusivity expires, the idea is more manufacturers will come in, creating more competition, which is kind of the best way to reduce drug costs. And, and then kind of jumping off of that, I mean, PBMs are expecting a wave of these drugs to hit the market in the near future. I mean, why do you see such promise in biosimilars as you're thinking about strategies to really drive down those drug prices? So, so... Let me take you back in time, and I'll, I'll belie my age a little bit. But <laughs> in 2005, the generic dispensing rate, the, the percentage of prescriptions that were dispensed as generic drugs was about 45%. By 2022, the percent of, and these are traditional pills, tablets, and capsules that are dispensed as generics, are 90%. That increase doubling put an incredible amount of deflationary pressure on overall drug spend not drug prices but the overall spend 
actually has been in the single digits for a long time. When we, where we sit today in 2022, 50% of all of the spend, you know, 50 cents out of every dollar is on specialty medications. And up until just the last couple of years, there were no biosimilars. I mean, part of that was there was no real regulatory pathway. It took a while to get them approved. Um, so when, when we see over the next, call it eight to 10 years, about $100 billion of specialty products losing their marketing exclusivity and having a pathway now for the approval of biosimilars, that's why we think biosimilars will be important uh, contributors to reducing drug spend. It, where we have seen biosimilars come to market, both in the United States as well as in Europe, we've seen pretty substantial reductions in the cost, the net cost for the products. Biosimilar drugs are poised to compete with some of the biggest branded drugs available with particular hope that they could drive down the cost of Humira, which is a, a hugely popular drug. Are you seeing specific potential drug categories where these products could really make the biggest splash in the market? Almost every drug of size has a series of biosimilar competitors lined up. So um, biosimilar Humira, Agilimumab, which is so hard to say, um, there are probably at least nine or 10 different ones that are lined up to come to market. So like everything else, the more, uh, the bigger the drug, the more people want to get a piece of the market, the more competitors are on the market, the more rapidly we'll be able to create competition. If you look overseas, the, the reduction in, in costs has been very, very dramatic for where Humira is already on the market as a biosimilar. And even in countries that have kept the originator molecule on it's at a substantial discount. As we're kind of waiting for these drugs to, to hit the market, you know, how can payers and PBMs be thinking ahead to kind of prepare for that wave? That's a really, really good question. And um, if you look back over the past five or more years, um, the, the manufacturers, the originator manufacturers have um, put up num a number of blocks or number of hurdles and it was really a, a lot of um, effort put into making it hard to switch these drugs now most of those we've been able to um, deal with as i mentioned our experience with basic iron lantus was, was quite successful so we have two we have two goals right so number one is we want to have the lowest net cost product on any given day every day and that's helped or, or mostly facilitated by having the most competition. So, But we also need to have a vibrant biosimilar marketplace. And that's where, where it gets a little bit you know, potentially troublesome, right? Because you don't know how all of the different manufacturers are going to come to market with different pricing strategies. And um, if Every manufacturer who brings about someone to market just becomes, you know, a proverbial column fodder to reduce the cost of the originator molecule. Well, then people aren't going to make the relatively substantial investment to get biosimilars to market. So we're, we're not playing a, 
a one-year game. We're not playing a, a one-product game. We're, we're thinking about this very strategically to say, how do we balance the immediate short-term needs? Um, if there's a balance to be had with long-term um, viability of the biosimilar market, because if we lose that long-term viability, it'll be, you know, these things don't come to market, you know, willy-nilly. It takes time. Are there any challenges in making the case to, you know, patients or plan sponsors such as employers about these drugs? I mean, what concerns do do they have about potentially switching to a biosimilar product? I think the first place we have to get to is doctors. It's almost like, you know, traditional generics. We have to get doctors comfortable with the quality. And the nice thing is that if you look at um, some of the biggest manufacturers of, of biosimilars are current manufacturers of, bi- of biologics. So, you know, Amgen has talked a lot about their biosimilar portfolio. Samsung, which is a huge manufacturer, has talked a lot about it. So I think that'll help get doctors comfortable. Patients, I think it's, you know, patients want to trust what their doctors say. So the doctors have trust as in the patients have trust. And with respect to the, to the plans, I think the, you know, one of my colleagues likes to say, we want to make the right decision. We don't necessarily want to make the first decision. While the industry is anticipating this biosimilar wave, we haven't quite gotten there yet. What do you see as kind of the trends to watch in this space over the next five or 10 years? So I, I think the big trend to watch is, is um, the, the pricing behaviors of the biosimilar manufacturers, right? So um, do, they, do they sort of track down? Do they take a big step down to get a lot of volume? And then what's the response of the, of the originator molecules? You know, are they willing to deeply discount in order to maintain even a, a, a modicum of market share? Um, or, or are they happy to say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just stick with you know, a much lower market share but much higher um, you know, revenue per, per, per Rx. And that's a, you know, we've seen a lot of different behaviors from manufacturers. Like sometimes they'll price, you know, with a pretty low, you know, a low list price because that's what works in certain market segments like Medicaid. Other times, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put a you know, really deep discount in the market early on in the hopes of, you know, garnering, garnering more market share. And what you've seen um, with the advent over the last 10 years um, uh, of exclusion formularies, that, that, that works, right? The fact that you can have a, a, a literal hard block on a formulary really does allow, um, it, it gives the manufacturers sort of a confidence that if they take that deep step and really put a competitive price on the market, they can get the volume. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that prior to my ascent, prior to my joining Caremark, Caremark was one of the leaders, was one of the first in that space, but uh, I can't take credit for it. <laughs> you know, we were discussing Humira, which again is a drug that poses a significant opportunity for for savings in the biosimilar market. Um, you know, as you're thinking about kind of, you know, interchangeability and, and formulation of these products, I mean, what are what are some of the the, the trends to watch there? What is important to me are the two biggest factors for patients. So one is, um, in the case of Humira, it's formulation. It's citrate-free so that it doesn't hurt when you inject it. 
And the second is the is the form function of the actual device that the because you think about someone with rheumatoid arthritis that you know their their joints are painful they can sometimes have deformity. The third one would be concentration, less of an issue because I don't think most people can really feel the difference between a you know a low concentration and a high concentration. I guess if you were a really itty bitty tiny person and you didn't have a lot of subcutaneous fat, maybe it hurts a little bit more. So that's what we're thinking about it, right? It's, it's, we want to get the maximum market share, which means we need the maximum amount of utility that's real, right? I don't, we don't want to hurt people to hurt burn when they inject, and we want them to be able to use the injector. So those are the two most important things. And I suspect that as we, as we see the winners and losers in the in the um, agilimumab uh, 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 example. The follow-on products later on, that come in the later part of the of the um, of the decade will pay if they're not already will pay more attention to those form factors. How should we be thinking about physician-administered drugs in in this conversation? Well, it's a really um, that's a very complicated topic, right? Because when we have uh, the biosimilars that are lower cost, if we don't adjust the fee schedules and aren't really um, planful about the fee schedule, we can create an, 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 a, an unintended consequence of the physicians have a negative incentive to use the biosimilar. So when we work with plans, we, we work with them to create custom fee schedules so that even with the, with the cost savings, the, the unit cost savings, we make sure that the physicians are held um, economically neutral or maybe even a little bit of positive benefit. Um, because you you can create enough savings to make that make that work. And we've seen you know in in much older work uh, in lung cancer with five different regimens, um, the most expensive regimen gets the most use, even though they all have the same utility. Um, it's it's economically rational behavior, not bad for patients, right? I mean. It, it, so, so I think it's important that we that we keep in mind that that is that is a factor, um, and especially as more and more of the um, targeted immunotherapies become available as biosimilars, that we we, we don't um, we don't let an unintended consequence happen. Well, Alan, thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing your insights today. Oh, Paige, more than my pleasure. Really appreciate uh, the thoughtfulness of the questions, and uh, it was wonderful to catch up. That was Dr. Alan Lotvin and Paige Minnemeyer. 46 million people living in rural communities are facing a healthcare crisis, and that is access to care. According to the National Institutes of Health, rural communities have mortality rates about 23% higher than urban communities. This is largely because many rural communities lack access to quality care, and things are getting worse. There is a doctor shortage. Nearly 80% of rural counties are short on primary care doctors, and 9% have none at all. And many rural hospitals are closing. In the last 10 years, 136 hospitals have closed. Dr. Jennifer Schneider is the CEO of Homeward, a technology-enabled healthcare provider delivering care to rural America. She sat down with senior editor Heather Landy to discuss this crisis of access to healthcare. Here is Heather Landy and Jennifer Schneider. Well, hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to chat with you about the healthcare challenges in rural communities and strategies to improve care. So excited to be with you today, Heather. Thanks for the opportunity. 
So let's talk about the current state of healthcare in rural communities. You know, we're talking about about 46 million residents in the U.S. who live in these areas. How would you describe the current healthcare challenges? You know, what is the average healthcare experience for people who who live in these kind of you know sparsely populated areas? Yeah, it's a really great question, and I often start by saying uh, healthcare in rural America is not a little broken; it's a lot broken. And it's broken to the point where if you live in a zip code designated as rural by the last three digits of your zip code, your mortality rate is 23% higher than if you live in a zip code with an urban designation. And there's really three big hurdles. One is reimbursement. So today in rural America, healthcare operates primarily in a fee-for-service model. So that means physicians and care providers get paid the more number of visits that they deliver. So this is encourages a volume versus value approach. And in small town America, where people are distributed very far, there's oftentimes not enough volume. Therefore, there's not enough providers to care for people. We know that in rural America, there's half the number of primary care doctors as compared to urban, and one eighth the number of specialists compared to urban environments. The second big hurdle in rural America is infrastructure. And so those of us who have been on car trips or driven in those long roads, um, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of public transportation. Oftentimes there's not broadband connectivity. And it takes a long time for people to leave their house and get to a doctor's office. On average, just over two hours to make it to a care a facility where there is care given. And then the third hurdle is acceptance. Um, we know that trust is paramount in these communities, and it takes a lot of investment to really understand the beautiful local dynamics of a community and to be trusted before you're able to deliver highly effective care. So in March of this year, you and a team of other healthcare veterans launched Homeward with a focus on kind of improving care in rural areas. You know, what motivated you to, to start Homeward and, and why are you interested in rural healthcare? Um, I grew up in small town America. I grew up in Winona, Minnesota, was just recently there visiting with family. And um, with my co-founder and partner, Amar Kendale, we recognized how broken healthcare delivery is in rural markets. And I think uniquely thought that we could do something different. And the two key pillars that we're delivering and doing something different are, one, aligning economic incentives. So that means we're taking on total capitation. We're responsible for the total cost of care for people in these markets. Um, and the reason that's important is because of the second pillar is you need to actually, given the lack of infrastructure in these rural markets, you need to rely on technology to enable care delivery so people can work at the top of their licensures and we can reach people where they are. And technology-enabled services and a fee-for-service model doesn't work, is not economically sustainable. So you have to combine the two. And we thought we were uniquely positioned to do this. As I understand it, you are literally bringing care to patients either at their homes or with, you know, through RVs, mobile, cl mobile clinics that are in RVs. Um, why do you think your company can make a difference in rural healthcare? We partner with health plans to help close gaps in care by making in-home care more convenient and accessible. This is especially important um, in the Medicare population, and we support the plan's Medicare Advantage expansion. And we know in rural markets that people in Medicare Advantage plans are two times more likely to switch back to traditional Medicare because there's not very many providers in their network. Um, similarly, like Oak Street, we provide end-to-end -end solution for members by delivering access 
convenient access to both primary and specialty care when people need it. And then very importantly, um, because people in rural markets are sick and vulnerable, is that like a landmark, we're able to provide care for the most vulnerable populations and that are the hardest to manage. And so our health plan partners appreciate our ability to enter a community as an in-network provider and manage entire populations, including the most sick, who may not otherwise receive care, all while improving their penetration into Medicare Advantage. Why isn't there more investment in this area? I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one is, um, uh, you know, if you think about, we talked about 46 million people. So it's one out of every five Americans live in a rural healthcare market. That's huge. And yet people, I've sometimes had people say, well, why don't you go where the four out of the five live? And then, well, the four out of the five don't have the same type of broken problems as the one out of five, you know, so it's this relative comparison on market size when you start and enter a new business. And just, you know, sort of joking aside, you know, when we launched Livongo, we were initially focused on people with diabetes and that was 30 million people and people thought the market was huge. And I sometimes look at ask, well, why are you working in such a small market? And I'm like, yeah, it's it's actually bigger than the initial market for Livongo. So it is, it is, uh, you know... Relative to comparison, it, it is um, a big market, but a smaller out of the two markets, rural versus urban. I think that the, the other reason is that technology advances, we've really seen those accelerate in the past decade. And um, you need these in order to be successful in rural markets. So things like um, telehealth is a part of the puzzle. Remote patient monitoring is a part of the puzzle. Um, combining with logistics around um you know, mobile clinics and in-home visits. We've seen different types of these models work individually. It's the compilation of all of these that is going to need to exist in order to be successful in these rural markets. And those proof points have really only come to fruition in the last 10 years across those different those different variants. Right. Yeah, I've heard other healthcare executives point out that they think, you know, rural communities are really kind of ripe for healthcare innovation. Would you Would you agree with that? I think whenever there's a huge, massive problem where things are really broken, innovation has to happen. And I think rural communities are at that point right now. What role do partnerships play in all of this? I mean, is that a, kind of a key part of your strategies to partner with other organizations? Yes, I would say it's um, not a nice to have. It's a fundamental must have for a couple of reasons. One, if, if, if our goal is to actually improve healthcare delivery in rural markets and we want to come in and compete with existing healthcare providers, we have, well, there's no way we'll accomplish our goal, especially if the number one problem is there's not enough healthcare providers in the rural markets. So we are absolutely looking at how do we partner within the ecosystem so that every person can deliver what they do best to achieve the optimal outcome. I think the other component is in rural markets, relationships really matter and trust is paramount. So it's not like there is a grocery store on every corner of this of the block. You know, liken this to New York City, for example. You can go to any bodega to pick up a Diet Coke. It doesn't really matter. Your loyalty to these stores doesn't exist. It's very different when it's your grandmother, your nephew who works at the store, or owns a store, and you go to that store. So developing trust and working within an ecosystem for a partnership is really critical. And it's a, a lot of why we think around the hybrid model that we're offering, which is a combination of in-person visits and technology-assisted, is critically important. We know that telehealth has existed for many years, and yet telehealth alone has not cracked uh, you know, the answer here in rural health, in large part because you have to have a 
have built trust first and foremost. So our model, we start with an in-home visit for individuals that allows us to deeply understand the person in terms of what their daily living activities are like and the, the um, obstacles that they may encounter within their home life that affect their health. It also allows us to set up the technology to enable to continue to converse with people or have them reach out to us when they're in trouble. It's very different to have somebody type a phone number into your phone versus receiving something in the mail with a, with a number of a, a phone number to call when you're in trouble. So they're very different experiences. And so we've taken the hybrid approach, recognizing that it's important for us to build trust and important for us to actually allow our technology to be useful and to scale. Right. Okay. Those are great points. Um, in a lot of these communities, you know, the, the local Walmart or the local drugstore, you know, is a lot closer than than the, the next, you know, the closest hospital or health system. And sometimes those retailers can play a big role um, in healthcare in, in those communities. You know, what role do you think they can play? Yes, absolutely. So we know that um, pharmacists are some of the most trusted people in the healthcare ecosystem who also have the highest number of touch points with an individual. You often refill your prescription every 30 days or every 90 days, while you may see your physician once every 180 days or two times a year. And so absolutely, retailers and other places of convenience are very important to be able to have uh, access points to deliver healthcare that really fits the member or the patient's life and the way that they go about their daily activities. What motivated you from doctor to healthcare entrepreneur? Yeah, so I, so my background, I grew up in a town called Winona, Minnesota. You know, my dad owned this auto parts store where all of myself, my brothers, most of our friends worked growing up. And our job was to deliver parts to other businesses in more distant rural, rural Minnesota when their tractor broke or their spark plug died. And it's this realization that how important those businesses are for the livelihood that we would actually go about and deliver parts to them. Yet when somebody in that environment, in that rural small town in Minnesota broke, we would make them drive a couple hours to go get healthcare. So this idea has really formed a lot of the thinking as to how we could alter and change healthcare delivery in this ecosystem. And so I am somebody who's motivated by finding things that aren't working and trying to build and be a part of a team that can help fix it. Yeah, well, that's really interesting. Those are those are great points. Something that you said at the very beginning of our chat, you mentioned that you know rural healthcare is broken. What is kind of your vision for what rural healthcare will look like? Um, you know, once it's it's fixed, you know, so to speak. Yeah, so I think that you know, bare bare basics is people who choose to have a rich life by living in small town America should have the same, be afforded the same opportunity to care outcomes that those of us or those of us who live in urban areas. And so I think that's a bare bone metric. Well, Jenny, it was really great chatting with you. So thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Great to connect with you, Heather. That was Heather Landy and Jennifer Schneider. Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Caleb Hotson, the sound engineer. Our senior producer is Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss how health plans can harness the power of data for a more personalized experience and how to fix primary care. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.